If you are a powerful, impactful, influential leader, it is your job to create clarity even when you cannot see. The only true competitor in the infinite game is yourself. The leader of the team has to go first. So where do ideas come from? Welcome to Nordic Business Forum Audio, the podcast that empowers leaders to change the world. I'm Heli, and in this episode, we'll hear from Don Tapscott, the executive chairman of the Blockchain Research Institute. During this discussion, Don shares his insights on blockchain, privacy, and transparency, among a few other important issues. This interview was recorded at Nordic Business Forum Helsinki in 2018. Enjoy. You are one of the world's leading authorities on technology and business written more than 15 books on various different topics, but we're going to be talking today about the internet of value, or one other way of putting it, blockchain for dummies. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people here, a lot of smart brains here um, at this forum, but blockchain is a complicated concept for a lot of us. <clears throat> How many people actually understand what it is? How many people are really in this niche these days? Well, it's an interesting question, because how many people understand how the internet works. Do you understand HTTP and the difference between that and XML and SOAP and UDDI and the internet stack? And No, we just use it. And the same will be true for blockchain. I find it fascinating that when it comes to moving not just information around, but value like money or stocks or, or votes or identities, People have a real need to understand, well, how, is, how does that work? How can I send money from my mobile directly to your mobile? And there's no bank. There's no clearinghouse. There's no settlement agencies. There's no you know, escrow people. There's no uh, institutions in the middle. And um, so I find myself having to explain how that works, as I did in my speech today. Yeah, we'll, we'll try and get you to give us a, a quick summary in a moment for those who didn't hear your speech. But I guess that's a really interesting perspective. You know, you don't necessarily have to understand how an engineer built a bridge, but we go right. over bridges every day in our cars and on trains. We don't question it. Thank you it. for that good analogy. Yeah, I'm going to use that. Okay, great. I'll watch out I'll for take your next... Ca- I'll take credit <laughs> for it, too. Thanks. Okay, but can you explain blockchain in a nutshell for those of us who aren't computer scientists? Well... For those of you who weren't at my uh, talk this morning, I use the example of Bitcoin. And the way it works is if I send you a thousand pounds, that's broadcast out to a global network of millions of computers. And each computer has the highest level of cryptography. And then there's a group of, a smaller group of people called miners that have massive computing power, at least 20 times bigger than Google. It's a lot of computing power. And they use these computers to validate that transaction. And every 10 minutes, they create a block. And a block contains all the transactions from the last 10 minutes. The fact that I sent you 1,000 euros. But it could be, ultimately, the fact that you and I traded a stock. Or you and I um, got married. That's not very likely uh, in that case. But the fact that, that we bought and sold a house or ultimately that some light bulb bought some power from a, from a solar panel next door. And um, then what happens is 
the first miners to validate that block get paid some of the cryptocurrency. Then that block gets connected to the previous block to create a chain of blocks. So you've got this, it's like a big database that's distributed across all of these computers. And it's really, really tough to hack. I mean, my analogy is, if you want to hack that process thing, it's like turning a chicken McNugget back into a chicken. Now, someday somebody's going to be able to do that. But for now, it, that's going to be tough to do. Mm. Okay, so Bitcoin, as you say, very much uh, the most recognizable use of this. But how far reaching could it be and when? Well, it's happening right now. It's just in ways that people don't see it. So the supply chain industry, everything that we make has a supply chain. That's a $50 trillion industry. This is moving towards blockchain, biggest ones in the world, Foxconn that makes your, probably that device. Um, uh, Walmart, one of the biggest supply chains in the world. And the biggest is one belt, one road, linking Hong Kong and Rotterdam. It's the new Silk Road, right? Trillion dollar project led by the government of China. Um, 22 countries involved, hundreds of companies. All of the trade finance, it, you know, where money moves around and things move around as stuff goes across the continents, that's being done on blockchain as well. So that's one of over a couple of hundred applications that we're studying in the Blockchain Research Institute. Okay, so very, very, very wide ranging. I want to pick up on something you said a little bit earlier about how hard this stuff is to hack and privacy. You were talking earlier on stage about privacy being the, the foundation of free societies. And that's a very interesting yeah. perspective here in the Nordics, where there are very high levels of trust. And a lot of our information is out there. Um, we have these personal numbers, uh, certainly where I live in Sweden, yeah. you need that to join a gym to get a phone number. Everybody can look up online exactly where you live, what you earn, what yeah. your mobile phone number is. So in societies like these, which are more open and privacy is less prevalent. Um, I'm just interested to know, what do you think about this, this Nordic approach? And why well, do you view privacy as so sacred? Well, you raised two things. You raised privacy, and you also raised transparency mm. that is, has to do with openness. And I wrote a book about privacy in 1995. It was called Who Knows? Safeguarding Your Privacy in a Network World. I think my mother did buy most of the copies of that book. Like it was a very like, valid question <laughs> ahead of its time. Yeah. Uh, but I also wrote a book about transparency in 2000. It's called The Naked Corporation. Here's the difference. Individuals have a right to privacy. In fact, I think privacy is the foundation of freedom. And all this information that we create from transactions through to our medical information, our heart rate, our, our genetic information, and so on, constitutes our identity. And the, our identities have been taken away from us, so we need to get them back. Now, on the other hand, there's a real power of transparency. But that's not for individuals. That's for institutions. Privacy is a right of individuals. Transparency is an opportunity for individuals. Uh, sorry, for institutions like companies and governments. Because if you're a company and you open up, you share information with your customers, with your suppliers, with the communities within which you operate, you build trust, 
you increase the metabolism of your operation, you increase loyalty and so on. Mm. So let's not confuse these two. Privacy is for individuals, transparency is for in, in, uh, institutions. But we're also talking about trust, the trust yeah. of institutions to handle our data, to handle yeah. our information, which is very high here in this yeah. part of the world and maybe not so much in, in other areas of the world. Yeah. So. Well, and trust is at the heart of all of this, both of those. Because, well, as I said in my speech, what is trust? You know, I've, I've read everything I could about trust. It took me three months to, to write this sentence. Trust is the expectation that the other party will act with integrity. Trust is the expectation that the other party will act with integrity. And integrity has th three values. That you're honest, that you'll be considerate of my interests. So we're, we're having a negotiation. It's not just about you getting everything you can. You actually care about me. And that you abide by your commitments. You're accountable. You will do what you said you will do. And today, trust in society is at an all-time low. People don't trust their governments. They don't trust corporations. They don't trust institutions. So we need to find ways to bring that back. And blockchain, the internet of value, represents a new platform whereby we can build a whole new generation of trust. Because you must act with integrity. I can't cheat you on a blockchain. I can't steal from you. I can't hack it unless I can turn a chicken McNugget back into a chicken. And so that's why we call it the trust protocol. And it's a very powerful thing. Okay. I got this quote from your website, which is that blockchain could be a solution to help fix the music industry. And I wanted to pick up on that because that's of interest to people here in the Nordics, home of Spotify. I just wanted to know what you might mean by that. Well, I'm actually a musician. Um, so I... What do you play? Tell us. <laughs> well, I, I play keyboards mainly, but also guitar. Are you in a band? Yeah. How are you relaxed? The band is called Men in Suits. Okay. Um, we're not all men, and we rarely wear suits. But uh, actually, we're a charity band. We raise money for good causes. If you have a charity, our price is very, very reasonable. We're free. Uh, so uh, have us come to your charity. We've raised millions of dollars for good causes. And we're now recording uh, as well. But the music industry was broken by the Internet of Information. Because the Internet of Information was a medium whereby you could replicate things. You know, if I send you a PDF or a PowerPoint, I'm actually not sending you the information, I'm sending you a copy. And we didn't have an internet of value for assets, so when an asset came along, like an MP3 file, the only tool we had was a copying tool. So we sent out copies. I did this, everybody did this. And that meant that if you're a songwriter, 35 years ago, you wrote a platinum song, you get $46,000 in royalties, today you get $35 for a, a, an equivalent successful song. So blockchain can fix this, and I explained in my talk, Imogen Heap, the uh, British singer-songwriter, uh, won a Grammy, she's got this new platform where she's posted a song up there, it's on a blockchain, and her song is inside a smart contract, just like what it sounds like, a contract that polices itself. It's a contract with a software lawyer and a bank. 
and a government inside the contract. And the contract specifies the intellectual property rights of the song. So the contract might say, well, you can listen to it for free. Or it might say, um, it's going to cost you a few micro cents. But then if I'm a movie producer and I say, well, I want to use the song in my movie, then the song says, well, what do you want to do? You want it to be a background or a theme song or somebody going to sing it? And then the way she describes it is my song acts as a business. Mm. It's protecting my rights and negotiating on my behalf. Mm. So, wow, that would be really exciting because it means this would be good for songwriters and musicians because right now... The way the industry works is you're never going to get a recording contract unless you're a home run hitter, okay? If you're a little klezmer band and all you can do is bunt or hit singles, you're not going to get a contract. So this could open up the music industry. It'd be better for musicians. It'd be better for music lovers like you because maybe you like that klezmer band, but they, they're not recording. They're working as waiters um, in, the, in the bar down here. And ultimately, it would be good for society as well because we need to create a world where people are fairly compensated for the value they create. Okay, fascinating insights. It's clear that you're really passionate about educating people on the benefits of uh, this technology. And clearly, forums like this are a great opportunity to do that. And a lot of people here are very switched on. But what do you think needs to be done more widely? to get people more engaged in these topics, to make sure there's not inequality of knowledge? The most important thing that can be done is for people to buy my book, Blockchain Revolution. <laughs> what a great business, in man. In massive quantity. <laughs> the more you buy, the more gratifying. No, seriously. Uh, there's a lot you can do. There's a lot written. Uh, get a Google alert on the word blockchain. Um, Download a Bitcoin wallet, go to Coinbase or blockchain.info and go spend 10 euros and buy something with Bitcoin. You're going to learn about it that way. Um, the other thing is on the, on the Internet of Information, there's a ton of great uh, video content. I know my, TED, my second TED Talk has, has like 4 million views or something. A lot of people are getting access to that, but there are lots of other good ones as well. And get yourself informed, because if this is true, what I'm saying, that for 40 years we've had an internet of information, now we're getting an internet of value, where anything of value, from money to stocks to intellectual property, carbon credits, music, art, votes, mm. can be managed, stored, transacted, peer to peer, if that's true, then this is a really big deal. And now's a good it, time to figure it, it out. You make it sound so exciting, but there are going to be people listening to this, watching this, that are, or that don't get the chance to, to get involved in these conversations, that are feeling scared about some of yeah. these changes. How yeah. can we articulate those benefits and make sure those messages spread? Well, I'm, I'm certainly doing my best, but we've also, at the Blockchain Research Institute, this is funded by 50 corporations and governments, and we're doing 85 projects trying to look at the way this technology changes different things. How does it change marketing? How can we get our identities back? What does it mean for privacy? How does it change art and the music industry? And how does it change, you know, a dozen different industries that we're looking at? So um, 
That's an important thing. But fear, you know, we fear what we don't understand. And, you know, 1982, I wrote a book where I said, everybody's going to use a computer. They won't just be tools for data processing, they'll become a communication tool. And I would come to Europe, and people would have great fear. Managers would say, I will never use a computer, because I'm never going to learn to type. And it was also, it was a class thing, and a, it was a gender thing, too. It was sexist. You know, if 1982, if you're a manager and you sat down at a keyboard in an office, people make fun of you. So hard to, to think that's happened in my lifetime. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. It's so much. I know. People would say, hey, Bill, what's up? Your secretary's sick? Or something like that. And then, so I went through that. And then in 1994, people said, well, I'll never use the World Wide Web. It's too complicated and it's too slow. Well, that got fixed. Um, and so there have been a whole series of these big paradigm shifts where people have reacted with fear because they cause dislocation and conflict and uncertainty, and they cause us to rethink certain behaviors. Mm. And a paradigm is really a mental model, and they put boundaries around what we think, and we have these mental models of certain things. Like you need a bank to do banking. Mm. You know, you need Visa to do a transaction. Well, you don't. Yeah, a lot of examples from the Nordics here of mobile payments uh, yeah. and apps very much disproving that. Um, and I guess this goes back to what we were saying at the very beginning, that it, a lot of it's about people getting used to things, like typing is now second nature for, for most people. Well, and it, it's now executives <laughs> type with their thumbs. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. You can see them all there in the audience. <laughs> um, and thanks to those of you interrupting uh, your business days uh, to, to tune into the live stream of Nordic Business Forum. It's, it's really, really great to have you here. Um, is there one thing that you're most excited about in terms of an application? You seem very animated about the music, but is there anything in particular that you could put your finger on? I mean, are you trying to hope that chicken nuggets don't exist? And <laughs> there's more chickens in the world, or is there something else more fun in terms well, of blockchain? Well, let me, let me mention too. I mean, I'm very excited about the idea of getting our data back. And your data, the virtual you, it knows more about you than you do, because you can't remember your heart rate a year ago, your exact location a year ago, or what you bought or what you got in the test or uh, what medication you took or, you know, etc. And right now, this is owned by Facebook, it's owned by Google, it's owned by banks, it's owned by big healthcare institutions. And there's a lot of work on your way to create the virtual you that's your identity, but you own it. And it moves around with you and it sweeps up all of this data. And imagine what you could do with this data. It's not just that you could sell it, you could use this data to plan your life, to have a healthier life, or to have a more productive life. And in the same time, you could protect your privacy. So this is a really exciting opportunity that's right at the heart of who we are, our identities. Now, because President Obama is speaking here at the end of the day, I will also talk about a big exciting application which I think has to do with making some changes to democracy. Because let's face it, democracy is, is in a real mess right now. It's a key matter of debate. Yeah. That's fair to say. And um, weirdly, young people aren't voting, which is a problem. Um, but do you blame the young people or do you blame the politicians? 
It's a it's a tough thing. And the media has a role to play and has been questioned and criticized over yeah. the last few years. Yeah. So and we created this first era of democracy. And it was better than what existed before, kings and nobles making decisions. But we had representative democracy. There was, um, but there was a weak public mandate. Citizens were inert. You vote and then you watch the politicians for four years. And there was opacity everywhere. You couldn't really see what was going on. And the biggest problem is that politicians are not accountable to you, the electorate. They're accountable to the, the powerful interests that put them there. The U.S. big money. So the example I gave this morning, 95% of Americans want to see a background check on firearm purchases. Congress can't pass a law reflecting the will of the population. What happened to government for the people, by the people, of the people? This is a joke, except it's not funny, because the alternative to democracy, there are lots of alternatives, and they're all really awful. So we need to move to a second era of democracy, and this technology can help us get there. We need to have stronger representation, politicians accountable to the electorate through smart contracts. Um, you know, that you vote for someone and you say, I'm voting for these things in your program and I want you to implement those, otherwise you don't get paid or money doesn't flow or you get taken out of office if you don't implement these things in a certain amount of time. Where we have transparency. Sunlight is the best disinfectant for corruption, for example, all around the world. We still have corrupt governments. Make them naked, and then they got to get buff. Mm. Um, but we could also have a culture of public deliberation and active citizenship. I'm not talking about direct democracy. You know, you vote every night on the evening news. That's a bad idea, okay? You know, AKA the electronic mob. Um, to me, democracy is a lot more than majority rule on a nightly basis. One of the things it's about is protecting the rights of minorities. But imagine if we could engage the population in discussions. Now, I did this, and we were going to do this with Bill Clinton when he was president. We were going to hold a digital brainstorm in the United States. And the topic that he chose was how do we close the digital divide? And it was right at the end of his term, and he got all involved in um, trying to solve the Mideast problem, an easy problem to fix. Um, and we never did this, but we were very close to doing this. Yeah. Well, it'll that be really interesting ago. to see yeah. how that progresses. I'm really sorry, Don Tapscott. Yeah. We're out of time, but I guess people can read a lot more about your projects and your books. Very interested to find out if you'll be teaming up with okay. future political leaders on other projects. Thanks, Don. Thank you for listening. You can keep on learning from other top experts by listening to our following episode. To share any suggestions or comments on this podcast, drop us an email at audio at nbforum.com. Until then, go make a change.